Thoth Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Hello friends and listeners, welcome to episode 10 of season 8 of the Thos Hermes podcast. My name is Rudolf and I am the creator and host of the show, talking to you from the outskirts of Austria's lovely capital, Vienna. In this episode called Peladon, exclamation mark, we will talk about Josephine Peladon, surprise, surprise, and I will talk to Sasha Chaitov about that, um, about him, about that personality, about the time, about the influences and all of that. Sasha Chaitov, um, who is a scholar and artist and author, and we will talk more about that in the intro to this interview and also, of course, mainly in the interview itself. It's my pleasure to have you all back here on this podcast uh, now. in the second week after the fifth anniversary. Now I stopped talking about that now. Thank you all for coming back. And uh, thanks to those who have discovered this show for the first time. Great to have you here. Go to our website, all of you. Website thoshermes.com, T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S.com, where you will not only find all the episodes with the show notes. Show notes, really important thing. Do go there also today of today's show. You'll find more details about Sasha, about Sasha Chaitov and about uh, Josephine Peladon there. Um, but of course, also, you will find possibilities to send me feedback, which I always like. Feedback via voicemail there, kind of voicemail, a voice recording device, which sends me a free Example, sample of your voice if you leave me one and with your comments and ideas and thoughts and everything. But if you prefer email, it's info at thoughthermes.com. If you prefer the contact form on the webpage, that's also possible. Or, of course, there is good old comments on YouTube or there is Facebook and Twitter where you can contact us here. It uh, would be great to hear back from you. And while you are on the website Yes, please do become a patron. We need your support. And thanks to all of you who are already supporters of the show. Um, They are really, really a steady bunch of people, I must say. I'm very, very happy and proud about you. Almost no dropouts. And um, most of them who are there have been there for quite some time now. And I, I really appreciate that support and your fidelity in that. Um, so take an example from those guys. They pay for your podcast. Hey, don't you feel a bit awkward about this? Mm. Okay, yes. Okay, you can change that. Go there. $1 per show is already the starting point. And if you don't want to do that, if you'd rather pay once and that's it. Nice. Thank you. There is the donation button on the website as well. So either become a patron on the Patreon website or on the Thoth Hermes website, where the button can be found. 
or thanks for your donation. Thanks in advance. So there is time for some music today now here again. And well, the music here today is again something rather special. Um, well, listen, you remember what you just heard? Uh, let me play it to you again just briefly. Okay, yes, that's the intro and outro music to the Sauce Hermes podcast for, well, uh, soon 100 episodes. I think we started with it in season three, and this uh, music was written specially for this podcast by my Facebook friend Chris Roberts. And it's A, about time to thank him again and uh, to to tell you a little bit about him. And B, also because he was really kind. And when I asked him, he wrote the jingles for the new Kaikobad radio. You know what Kaikobad radio is? Yes, the new radio where you can find esoteric content all around 24-7. Kaikobad, um, that is radio.kaikobad.com, K-E-I-K-O-B-A-D.com, and put radio dot in front of it. Uh, if you go, if you don't remember, if you don't have a pen to write that down, go on the Thos Hermes website. You can find the link there as well. So Chris, Chris Roberts also wrote the jingles for that. And I think it's about time that I present more of his work uh, to you. And I will do that today. He has some, done, done something very special. He has taken um, texts, about, uh, tarot texts and conjurations. Um, you, you'll, you'll recognize them. And written music that accompanies those texts and those texts has been have been written have been read sorry by colleagues of mine podcasters occultists who have read those texts and chris has put the music uh with that and it is really 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 great um and um we, I just wanted to point that out because Chris is a great guy, and um, if you need anything in that in that order, if you need music to go with your podcast or with your other with a website, or if you need some kind of well, I don't want to call that background music because it's not background; it's energetic, esoteric, practical help with with mixing on making or mastering music or vocals or jingles or whatever he is really the guy for that so if you want to get in touch with him um i'll point it out on the website uh, how you can get in touch with him or do write to me um he would really appreciate and i think he do is doing an extraordinary job so those three pieces we're going to hear now today they are a bit longer than usual they are um, uh, six to eight minutes long those conjurations and we're going to start with the devil the devil which the card the tarot card of course i mean the devil associated with the hebrew character ajin and um the conjuration going with that is being read by a good friend of mine, good friend of mine, Key 16, the meditation. It's a meditation rather than a conjuration. I was wrong. Sorry about that. The meditation on Ayin, on the devil, 
is read by my good friend Greg Kaminsky. So enjoy Chris Roberts' version of Key 16, The Meditation on Jain, the Devil, read by Greg Kaminsky. Thus saith he who formulateth in darkness, I am Lord not of light alone, but of darkness also. For I, the one, am all-pervading. This is a hard saying and a stumbling block to many. Yet must ye consider it well and ponder it in your hearts. Is it not written in Exodus that the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and again in Isaiah, I create both the evil and the good. Have ye not also read, The eye of the Lord is in every place, and David saith, If I descend into Sheol, thou art there. Ayin is that eye, and it is in every place in very truth, because place there is not, save in the manifested, and wherever place is, there also are light and darkness side by side. From the mixture of light and darkness do all things proceed, and I am prince of darkness, as well as king of light. Shall there be anything wherein I, the Lord of all, have no dominion? They see crookedly who know this not, and in their deluded minds they divide my nature, setting the kingdom of light over against the realm of darkness, and thus making two gods. But the darkness is the fountain of existence, whence the universe floweth forth and thick darkness, which is my habitation, is the substance of all outward appearance. Five score and thirty is the eye, which is the wellspring of outward appearance. That eye is the one, multiplied through the sephirot. It is the sun of life and light, shining through the twelve tribes of heaven and spreading their power through the tree of life to make all things new. Yet does every beam of that sun cast a shadow also, for in all creation are light and darkness mixed, and their equilibrium is the mystery of mystery. One and not two is the beginning and end of all. But two are the aspects it presenteth to mankind, 
because men are subject to the illusion of duality. I, the Lord, destroy with darkness, but with darkness do I also create. The wise discern this. Fools, deluded by outward appearance, create a demon out of the web of their folly. In the last day shall the demon be cast into a lake of fire, but to each man there is appointed a last day, and none knoweth the time, save he who hath appointed it. The lake of fire is that divine understanding which cometh to a man who succeedeth in contemplation, as did our father Abraham, and the last day is the time of that achievement. Then shall all things pass away for that man, and he shall behold all things anew, and the prince of darkness shall be cast into the lake of fire. For then shall that enlightened one see that the demon is but the shadow of the Lord. Key 16, the meditation on Ayin, the devil, read by Greg Kaminsky. And the music is written and performed by Chris Roberts. Thank you once again, Chris, for this and for all the help you gave me so far. And it um, would be great if you could also have Chris work for you at some point. Right. So... Um, we are now going to greet Sasha Scheitoff, who is coming to join us here on the show. And as I said, we are going to talk about Josephine Paladon. Um, Josephine Paladon, who lived in 19th century Paris, who was a very eccentric figure. Um, I'm sure that um, it has happened to you a bit like to me, that you get the impression that uh, lately, over the last year or two maybe, um, Peladon is quite has come much much more into the foreground, and actually the reason for that, in my opinion, is mainly Sasha Chaitov because she did an extraordinary work on Josephine Peladon. She found a lot of materials. She's bringing 
more of reality to the foreground than has happened here before. Um, we are going to talk about all of this um, in in detail in this interview. I'm not going to spoil that now. Also, um, there is a very particular reason why, and I'm going to say that at the beginning of the interview, why now we are going to do this interview, because it was just announced um, basically a week ago um, by Theon Publishing. Theon Publishing, you know Theon Publishing, run by Jessica Grote and David Beth. And uh, uh, we have spoken about books from that great publishing house several times already here on the show. And we continue to do that, of course, also in the future. And uh, they have announced that they are going to publish this great work that um, has been written by Sasha Chaitov on Josephine Paladin um, in the very near future, hopefully in this summer or early or early fall it will come out and this is a great moment we expect and we really looking forward to that and on top of that they also said they would plan to have in the future even more books um, on the subject more texts that sasha has already conceived and and planned on uh, in the near future so this will be Son of Prometheus, Prometheus. Um, uh, this uh, book will be called like that. Uh, uh, and yes, once again, um, stay tuned with that. It's a great, great announcement that they made. And um, um, well, I'll read you the announcement text. I think that's best. And then we go into the interview. With great joy, we announced the forthcoming publication of Son of Prometheus by Sasha Chaitov. Based on her PhD thesis, this groundbreaking in-depth study of the life and works of French esotericist Josephine Peladon will precede her trilogy on Peladon's esoteric word and art to be released by Theon in the coming years. The book is the first scholarly study of the life and work of Josephine Peladon that succeeds in placing it in the context of the history of Western esotericism, while also providing a clear roadmap to the entirety of Peladon's initiatory teachings and philosophy of the esoteric power of art. Responding to multiple cultural shifts in fin de siècle French society, Peladon authored over a hundred novels and monographs in an attempt to bring about the spiritual regeneration of society through mythopoetic art underpinned by esoteric thought. Right, sounds great, doesn't it? Good, so um, stay tuned on that. I'll give you the link to Thayan Publishing also on the show notes. And of course, to uh, the work of Sasha Chaito and her both her interesting websites as well. Without further ado, we'll come back uh, after, well, 34 minutes. It'll be into the interview because that will be a musical break. But for now, let's go and meet Sasha Chaitov. Here comes the interview. A few days ago, a wonderful announcement was made by Theon Publishing. 
that uh, finally, finally, that book, The Life and Work of Josephine Peladon, or the title will be, I think, Son of Prometheus, shall be published. And it is, of course, a groundbreaking work by Sasha Chaitov, who I am very happy to have here tonight as my guest on the Thos Hermes podcast. Sasha, welcome and greetings to you. <laughs> greetings to you and everyone. And thank you for having me. May a special thanks to you because we are recording this on the Orthodox Easter Sunday, if I may say, and you made some time available. You're in Greece at the moment. And uh, that's really, really very nice of you to react uh, quickly at my request. That was so nice. Thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. And um, even better for what I get from, from the website on Theon Publishing, that it will not be uh, only... That work, which is, I think, based on your PhD thesis, but mm -hmm. it will be followed by a trilogy on his esoteric work. And that's all exciting news. So we keep our ears and eyes open on that. Um, which brings me to a, a first question, Sasha. Um, Josephine Peladon, you say it yourself on your website, has for a long time been put almost like on a on a side track and has almost been shunned by certain people and not been taken serious neither by esotericists nor by artistic uh, world um, and suddenly this seems to change but maybe we start with the first part why do you think is and was that the case and um, what motivated you to start changing that so um, during his lifetime, Peladin was, um, <laughs> he was an oddity as far as the French occult revival is concerned, because of course he is very much part of that occult revival. Um, but, and for a time, for a short, a very short time, he worked alongside uh, Papius, um, Gerald Angos, of course, and uh, Stanislas Tugaita, who are far better known um, figures of that um, whole milieu. But um, Peladin had a very clear vision of what he wanted to do. And it was directly at odds with what the rest of the this occult milieu um, was really driving at. Um, now it's a very complex period. Uh, we'd need a lot more time to go into death. Um, but the bottom line, which Peladan actually says himself uh, somewhere, is that he was aiming to de-occult occultism. Okay, mm -hmm. so um, he saw a very clear uh, character, a very clear relationship between occultism, society and religion. Um, and so he was looking to set it on a kind of new basis. And this was, of course, at odds with the aims and the beliefs and the priorities of the other groups. Um, now, he was also a pretty difficult character. As, um, and as I think that's his eccentricity is the one thing that everybody's aware of when it comes to him. So um, during his life, time, he very quickly became ridiculed. Um, a lot of uh, publicity surrounded his activities and a, a lot of that publicity was bad. Um, so he became somewhat notorious for what he was doing, but very, very few people actually understood what he was driving at. Um, among the people who did understand him were indeed Papus and, some, and many of the artists who joined Peladin's salons, but uh, figures like Oswald uh, uh, 
birth and uh, figures, um, other figures associated with Papus's circle um, wrote uh, very, very strongly against Peladan. And so um, that was the kind of first wave of um, his notoriety. The second wave being Alistair Crowley also um, borrowed quite a lot of Peladan's ideas um, and even symbolism, um, but equally wrote quite negatively, very negatively about him. And by the time of Peladan's death in 1918, he had withdrawn to a great degree. He'd recanted a lot of it. He'd, he'd sort of admitted publicly that he'd gone about things the wrong way. Um, and that he felt his life had been a failure. And uh, then by the end, and by the, in the years after his death, um, only a close circle of loyal kind of followers, and indeed his successor, Emil Dantin, and then um, Berthollet, they uh, became, Edouard Berthollet, they um, became among the only people to really try to keep his teachings alive. Um, but by the time we get to the mid 20th century, um, his name is useful to some orders to some a particular Martinist lineage, um, particular Rosicrucian lineage, or to simply claim um, claim lineage through Paladin for certain mm-hmm. things. But other than that, he's or he's already been forgotten by that time. Um, and then when it comes to esoteric scholarship, which kind of, which um, academic study of esotericism picking up in the sort of in the 70s, more or less onwards, we only really see him as a footnote here and there. I encountered him as a footnote, or, uh, no, not as a footnote, but um, in a brief but pretty thorough, actually, um, mention in the book uh, on Rosicrucian history by Christopher McIntosh. And that was my first encounter with Peladan, in fact, um, where I quite, at the time I was doing the MA in Western Esotericism at the University of Exeter, and I paid no attention to him at all. I actually thought, I I, I read um, the the description by Chris McIntosh and I thought, oh, how ridiculous, I'm afraid. (laughs) And that was it. Um, And then, and and I was influenced, like most people were were influenced, I think, by, and most scholars have been influenced um, by um, the sort of um, always slightly derisory, slightly disdainful, slightly amused kind of side um, sort of comments about Paladin that I would see in longer studies. Um, but there was never really anything else. And once I actually did get into studying him, and I'll come back to you, the part of your question as, mm-hmm. as to um, why I decided to, um, I discovered in reviewing the literature, there were around and 10 um, at the time when I was doing this uh, biographies of Peladin. Uh, apart from the work by Dantin and Berthollet, who were his very loyal uh, disciples and successors, indeed, he named Dantin his, his successor. Um, Every single one of those biographies was, did nothing other than ridicule Peladin. So when in 1968, I believe it was, um, an art historian, Robert Pincus Witten, came to do a study of um, the crossover between occultism and the history of art. And of course, 1968, this is 
before the sort of explosion of academic, mm-hmm. the academic study of esotericism, um, Pinker's Witten simply picks up on some of the already very, very biased biographies of the time, which in turn are written um, by people who knew Peladan's, knew what was being said about Peladan, knew uh, secondhand descriptions, let's say, from the press of the time uh, and so forth by um, about Peladan, but none of them had actually read his work and none of them had actually looked at the context of that work either. So they were simply taking secondhand reports and Pinker's Witten did this too. And, I can't, and, you know, you can't really blame him for this in the sense that he's looking at what look like historical sources without realizing that those very historical sources are actually based on hearsay rather than primary scholarship. And so um, that was really th- that and the supposedly definitive biography by Christophe Belfis, which um, I'll also get to, were the only real source in depth sources on Peladan at all when I came to study him. Now, Beaufils has is an excellent historian and has written, uh, the, de- the, the level of detail is mind-blowing. In um, it's, it's only available in French, but and it's called Josephine Belladin, Une maladie de, l'iri- de l'irisme, excuse my French accent, but I've got a Greek accent over my French, so <laughs> um, it's, the best, it's the best I'm going to do. And, so, and which is, you know, a sickness of lyricism, he's, he's calling Paladin's work. And what I discovered on reading Beaufils, the way he presents the actual sequences of events and the way Pellerin's life evolved, of course, um, there's no questioning the accuracy. Bofis's great, great, um, the, the great, great problem with this book is the interpretation of Peladan's esotericism and Peladan's belief system and what Peladan was trying to do in the first place. Because here too, Bofis um, seems to fall into the trap of judging it as um, with, without any sense of the actual context of esoteric thought. And once again, drawing more on preconceptions about Peladan's um um, sort of ideas and ending up really um, considering that he was um, not very talented uh, author, um, altogether over the top and really a bit of a wasted life. Um, so there's a, there's, there's a skew towards an emphasis on the, on his eccentricity. Um, but he do, he too does not go back to Paladin's actual writing um, to understand what this man is trying to, has, was trying to say you see um and therefore if this is the definitive biography and it's a scholarly historical biography you can understand that even (laughs) uh today um scholars who are not aware of the rest of the literature or the rest of the story would um get the impression that Peladan really isn't worth giving much time to um so that's that's why the skew to um, why he's been scorned, really. And of course, I need, I do need to point out the 2017 um, Guggenheim exhibition, which um, was presented as a um, revival of the um, 
Salon des Rose Croix, which mm-hmm. uh, got us all very, very excited indeed. Um, Peladon was considered completely incidental and insignificant to um, the presentation of this, um, these exhibitions. I was in contact with the curator. Uh, when I saw the description of what was going to go out, I actually offered pro bono to um, at least share some of my work on Peladam because it, at the time, um, well, it, it, was, it was nearing publication but wasn't there yet uh, and, and then delayed a lot longer than I thought it would. Um, and she told me that they just weren't interested that they weren't even interested in Peladan as a figure because he was insignificant and incidental. Um, and the only thing they, th- their focus was on the artists themselves and how they then influenced modernist art um, from there on, which um, really is problematic on a number of levels. <laughs> it's a very unilateral uh, view on things in general, not, ju- not just about Peladan, but... Indeed. It, it, the whole the whole period artistically and of course in the history of culture of the time cannot Indeed. be seen separate of, of, of the whole revival movement etc no, etc et no. um, well the, I made a few notes of what you said um, I, I would like to come come back to some of them but before we do that um, I think it would be important that you let uh, our audience a bit know about yourself Sasha um, your background what uh, I mean what brought you to Pella we heard Christopher McIntosh, who, by the way, was also a guest on, mm-hmm. on this podcast uh, two years ago, I believe mm-hmm. he was. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a lovely man. And he, I think he's writing Indeed. also a, a, a nice intro to your book, if I if I remember well. Yes, right? yes. yes written, yeah. I, I asked him for a forward because, mm. well, he was my tutor at Exeter, but also uh, it's his fault I discovered Peladan and I just felt it necessary. So he's written a lovely, lovely Good intro. for him. Good yeah. for him. No, but, but what brought you there? I mean, before you started this, this, these studies and what mm-hmm. made you interested in that whole world of esotericism, mysticism, I think we also have to call it in the case of Belladon. Indeed. We can discuss mm-hmm. that a bit later. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But what, what brought you there? Who are you? Who is Sasha Scheidhoff? <laughs> and how did she become the Sasha she is today? Well, um, I started out as an artist. I still am an artist, a uh, visual artist, uh, which is all I ever really wanted to do. And it's still all I really want to do, <laughs> to be quite honest. <laughs> um, but you don't really make a good living as an artist alone. And so, um, and I did, in, I did in fact start art college in Athens uh, back in the late 90s. But at the same time, both for practical reasons, but also because I needed the intellectual stimulation, I did parallel studies so I was going to two two universities at once Um, and having done you know what what most people do the sort of practical thing I studied communications and media and then I went on to do English literature neither of which really excited me they were just kind of marking time so that I could somehow uh, fund my art studies later I discovered um, I was uh, in in the meantime, I was painting. I was working as a teacher already uh, trying to finish my not very inspiring (laughs) studies um, and really looking for direction. And the kind of art that I was trying to make um, was really art that uh, art 
that acted as a narrative. I'm a figurative artist. I don't do abstracts. I'm very much a figurative artist, very much a neo-symbolist artist, really. And I was a very bad neo-symbolist artist back in the early days because I had picked up, I've been an avid reader all my life, so I'd picked up various bits and pieces from my readings and always was fascinated by mythology, had tripped over alchemy somewhere along the way. But as I think with many people, um, there were huge gaps in my knowledge and these were just sort of, this was just a mishmash of things I'd uh, picked up along the way. And so I tried to take symbols that I didn't really understand fully and try to build images, but I knew what I knew um, how inadequate my, I was at that point. I, I, I did have the self-knowledge that I mm-hmm. needed more, but I didn't know what, what that was called. Um, until one day I received uh, the Watkins newsletter. In those days, we were still getting snail mail. It actually, the physical paper newsletter dropped through right. my door. Right, the uh, famous Watkins newsletter that that's many right. people have been inspired yeah. by, right? Indeed, yeah. Yeah. indeed. And in the back, and that was still in the days when, you know, you'd have to phone up to order books you know physically yes. you know or on, go on by the, in, in 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 east end yes exactly yeah, west end sorry yes yeah, yeah. quite right quite right no but i was living in athens at the time so yeah sure, sure yeah sure yeah um and so i was really starved for this kind of thing um and there in the back of the um newsletter was an advertisement for something called a master's degree in western esotericism at exeter university And my jaw dropped and I thought, this has got to be a spoof or it's got to be nonsense. It cannot be. This cannot be what I think it is. And off I went to explore on the Internet of 2005, (laughs) which was a different place. And it was the real deal. And I called my father and I said, you know what, (laughs) you're going to kill me, but I need to sign up to this (laughs) and um, sign up. I did. And it was one of the most amazing journeys. And I think everybody who was in my cohort and everybody who managed to make it through Exeter, the Exeter course will agree. Uh, Thankfully, we've stayed in touch. Many of us are still firm friends. Um, It was um, an an experience and a half. And And quite some of them have appeared on this podcast as well because I know uh, yeah, I know yeah. <laughs> you had my very dear friend Chris um yes yeah, just lately exactly recently, absolutely indeed. yes indeed um and we've done many many conferences together and so on so yeah um so Exeter and I did the master's degree and fa- suddenly discovered you see that there was a language there was a vocabulary there was a whole history to all the things I'd been trying to very amateurishly explore and discover so that I could basically look at acquire a vocabulary for my um, art because that's where this all started. Um, but I got sucked in and I did my master's thesis on um, the the um, emblematic book by Michael Meyer, the um, Atalanta Fugians. Um, yeah, and um, which I actually published last year. Um, so that's yeah. floating around there somewhere. And um, what I really wanted to carry on with, um, looking at the idea of a PhD and what I discussed with Nicholas Goodrick Clark at the time was something again relating to art and esotericism. Now I was interested, I was actually interested in looking at how symbolism functions. I, I, I wanted to do something more interdisciplinary initially, but that wasn't possible. Uh, never matter. He said, look at the French symbolists. 
just go and do some digging and come back to me mm-hmm. when you've got something. And that's and that's all he said. Um, so dig I did, and I discovered this whole new world and wondered why I hadn't discovered it before. And um, initially, I was fell, fell in love very hard with the work of Jean Delville. And I thought, okay, this is it. We've got something. Only, mm-hmm. only to discover that somebody else had already done that as their PhD and it was on its way to publication. So I wrote to them and I said, and I wanted to see whether there was any room for me at all. And a lovely, lovely scholar named Brendan Cole, his book has been published, I believe, by Cambridge Scholars. Um, I can't remember the title precisely, but there's only one book out there on Jean Delville's <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, in English, um, sort of quite recent, 2015, I think that was published. And um, he said to me when we met, um, somebody needs to do a proper study of Paladin because what's out there is rubbish and all insufficient and there's a lot more to it. And I thought, oh, God, no, not Pelada. No, no, no. What, the crazy guy? <laughs> and I actually so said So you that. were influenced by that, by that background here. I was, I was, uh, sure, I was. Sure. And um, he said, hmm, 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 let me, you know, look again, look again, you know, humor yeah. me. And he gave me a bunch of uh, bibliography to get me going. And um, I started reading Paladin's own work directly because he, the CD, the DVD he gave me had um, sort of the whole set of Paladin's uh, writings on there, along with a lot of other stuff. And I've realized, oh my goodness, we've got something here. And so once I'd kind of done the um, early, the preliminary research, I realized just how much this poor, poor guy had been misunderstood. And obviously, I mean, I, I have there have been people who've kind of read some of my stuff and have said, oh, you know, she's um, she's a, she, she's a Paladin supporter. No, I'm not. And I'm, I'll be the first to say uh, to, to point out the inconsistencies. And I've done this and I've done this. Um, you know, my students can attest to this. My re- I, I recently did a course teaching Paladin's material. Um, I'll be the first to point out when there are inconsistencies, when there are things that really cannot be salvaged in um, or claims that really cannot stand up. And especially towards the end of his life, Paladin did get very, very wobbly, I'll say, in his ideas. However, mm-hmm. um, as, as I said in my, as I have said in my upcoming book, and as I argued in my thesis at the time, and I still stand by this, um, if you're going to judge a body of work, um, first of all, as a scholar, you do not judge somebody's character. That's not, right. I, I'm not right. doing uh, historical journalism here. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. so, and I'm certainly not doing historical tabloid journalism. Um, I mean, it, th- this guy put out over a hundred books. He had a very powerful influence in some of the major figures of the day. And he had a very powerful influence on the trajectory, not only of symbolist art, but also of modernist literature in um, South American uh, countries. His work was translated and influential in Germany, Italy, Sweden uh, in his day. Therefore, there has got to be something there 
whatever it is, let's go and find it. And if in the end we do conclude that uh, he wasn't so important after all, that's well and good. But nobody has actually given him the time of day since the 1950s when Berthollet um, put out his four-volume um, mm-hmm. study, which, because it's from a Rosicrucian press and because it's from the emic side of the, the rails, is never, ever going to stand up as scholarly work anyway. So that's yeah. kind of where I, uh, how I came at it. Um, and that's pretty much what I've done with it. I've, um, I've literally looked through all of, all of his material um, grouped it according to what he says he was trying to do, always with a critical eye. So, okay, so he says he's trying to do this. Is he lying? No, he's not lying. Fine. So what's what's actually in it then? That's, mm-hmm. that's the line I've taken. I'm not interested in whether he succeeded or failed. We know he failed. That's they did, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but I'm not interested in that because he may succeed in a hundred years from now. Exactly, exactly. So that time doesn't play a role there. Not yeah, at exactly. all. What yeah. I'm interested in is was it, do are his claims supported by what he has tried to put out there? What's in there? Is it solid or is it nonsense? Um, and where's it coming from? And from there, I've essentially looked to produce a roadmap since nobody else has done this. Yeah. Um, in the context, you know, in the context of a PhD, you can only do so much. You have to um, set, sort of give, it, give yourself boundaries. So the first step really was to map it out and figure out what we're looking at. And from there, my real, my very, very strong hope is that other scholars um, will pick up the challenge and go deeper and further on all the things I've left out. And I've left out a lot because that's the way these things work. Yeah, and you have to at some point. And maybe we can talk about, well, something that hits me at first when I read Peladon. I must say I haven't read lots uh, of his own text mm-hmm. uh, I have to be honest about that and uh, but um, there are a few things for example I take I've recently read the Amphitheatre des Sciences Mortes right mm-hmm. and when you take when you take the 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 first pages he And I'm just taking this as an example. He, it was in the middle of the time where there was the discussion about the infallibility of the Pope, mm-hmm. right? And he makes a declaration there, uh, which is extraordinary. I recognize the infallibility of the Pope on the dogma ex cathedra. And if I might say things that are against hetero- uh, orthodoxy, you can burn all my works basically that's what he said yeah. and that's of course something that to the basic occultist of the 19th century and today seems extremely disturbing now is that is that only uh, uh, is that only eccentric or what's behind that what's what, what's what's his motivation to do such things so the only reason that is there is to save his own skin If the church gets more power again, that's all it is. And, really? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and Pelerin is highly, highly, highly critical of um, the Catholic Church in the form yeah. that it has in his day. Absolutely. So, other, I'm citing this, but there are other yes. places you could 
show almost yes. the contrary. That's why I'm so. That's, uh, this right? is a, this. I mean, you know, that's a great one. I cannot count the number of people that have written to me to say why do I why do I keep uh, saying every time I, I give another lecture that Peladan um, Peladan's version of Catholicism is very much universalism in the Greek sense of the word and not Roman strict Roman Catholicism as it was mm-hmm. in, understood in his day and uh, yeah. people will cite that very note that you've just cited as proof that he was a traditional Roman Catholic. and I, I know, that's why I cited it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, I, 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 can't, I wish, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad that the book is coming out so that I at least finally I'll be able to point people in a direction where they can find the answers to that because I've quoted um, various uh, sort of um, little pieces of evidence to explain where all this comes from. Um, Peladan... Where do I start with this? Peladan um, believed it was very much a perennialist. He was very much a believer in the idea of the Prisca Sapientia, and he believed that all religions, um, with an asterisk, I will have to be honest, with an asterisk about Islam, but it's an asterisk, and another asterisk about Judaism. In neither case is it anti Semitic or Islamophobic. It's the actual religion he's critiquing um, because he feels that every religion is imperfect, but if you over look at them um, all together and see all the places where they do overlap, therein we have truth. And um, he very much believed that he he had huge, huge respect for Hinduism. Um, And and he even went as far as to say that, you know, um, if Jesus Christ is only the God of the West, he is no God at all. Um, it's almost when, a neoplatonic view. Then, well, right? it, it, right. it is. It's yeah. not almost. It is very yeah. much yeah. because yeah. above all, um, Peladan is a Platonist, and one. Of, this is one of the strongest, strongest points I argue. Um, it was one of my um, sort of the, the findings I gave a lot of weight to in my um, study of him. Um, because again, this is an example where you see Bofis will say, "Oh, Peladan just parroted Plato." No, actually, he didn't. He's very much following a Neoplatonist stream um, that is totally characteristic of this uh, form of esoteric thought. So um, as far as far as um, religions in general go, Paladin felt there should be some kind of, you know, um, world council of religions where they are all, e- they, they all hold equal state standing mm-hmm. status. Um, he saw a, a lot of problems with the Catholic church um, in, in its actual day to day. But at the same time, he felt that it was critical that the church should survive um, and that the church should reform, yes, but also um, so it is highly socially necessary for a particular category of society um, who were never going to reach um, sort of more uh, occult or intellectual, um, you see, um, discoveries or um, sort of spiritual evolution. And he felt the church was absolutely crucial to this. And that, you know, if one had to choose between religion and occultism, he would want reformed religion because it was better 
than expecting people to be able to bridge the gap to occultism for okay. themselves. Um, and I'll come back to that because it's, I think it's really at the core of what he was um, an important, an important part. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, mm. the most, he, he saw, as he saw it in the days of the Neoplatonists, the, in late antiquity, that's where Peladan pinpoints the split, a breakdown, if you like, between Mr. Um, I'm sorry, religion and occultism. And he says mm-hmm. up until that point, they were one and the same thing. And within a religion, you had uh, the hierophant, you had the uh, ritual, you all of it was one thing. Uh, what he's really pointing out, I believe, is the split between the streams of Neoplatonism that gave us Plotinus on the one hand, mm. Iamblichus on the other hand. Mm. That's what he's really pointing at. And all of this is not in his book, um, Occult Catholique, which is, I think, this is the fourth or the fifth in the Amphitheatre. Mm-hmm. of death okay. sciences sequence yeah, yes. um the vast majority is in there of this and he explains how he so he points to alexandria um but what he's really talking about is this the, the neoplatonic um split and he then sort of returns to the present day trying to explain where this uh, that 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 early schism, as he calls it, has led to a complete and utter um, paradoxes and um, sort of misunderstandings between the church and the occultists of his day mm-hmm. who, he, you know, he, he gets very, very agitated and uh, critical of the Catholic clergy. He is equally cr- uh, critical of his fellow occultists, especially anybody who does ceremonial magic. And I know a lot of listeners are going to hate this. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No. I'm, I, I'm just, I'm just. Why, why should they hate it? Why should well, they hate it? Uh, people are listening because they're interested. I know. <laughs> well, I know it may upset some people too. Oh, of course, you always have people get upset. That's that's the point. (laughs) (laughs) But um, so he and this is where he was really calling for a, a reformed church and a reformed form of occultism, which focused solely on self development self-improvement not in the wishy-washy modern mm-hmm. new agey sense but sure. um a very a very a more a, a more pythagorean process if you like as he puts okay. it yes and yes. um and inner work intellectual work always the focus on uh the intellect um and he acknowledges that this is for the few whereas religion has to be for the many but again for him religion has to um reform and detach itself from nationalism on the one hand, which is another of the things Peladan is very, very negative towards, um, and also acknowledge the value of other religions and the parts they can play. So why is that little notice in the beginning of every single one of those books? It's to save his skin in case he has to, Okay. quite frankly. <laughs> so, uh, Yeah. <laughs> No, interesting and important to say. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for that. Let's take now a little break with some music. Music in the same vein that I told you before. Um, We are going to continue with two more meditations on the tarot set into music by Chris Roberts and uh, also read by people that you all know, colleagues who either do podcasts or are big occultists or both. And, um, well, the next is being the key one, the 
Meditation on Beth, The Magician, and it's going to be read by Nick Farrell. Yes, he was also a guest on this show previously, twice already, like actually all three of those readers here have been on this show twice at least. So, um, it's all a big family, as it says in the famous musical showboat, we are all a big, big family. Isn't that great? Good, so... Yes, Key One, The Meditation on Beth the Magician by Chris Roberts and read by Nick Farrell. After which we will return to Sasha Chaito and the second part of the interview. Highly interesting things she has to say, really. And um, at the end of the interview, there will be immediately the third meditation, the meditation K4, the meditation on Hei, the Emperor. And that one will be read by Angel Millar. So it's now Key One, the meditation on Beth with Nick Farrell and the magician, of course, the Key One. Then the interview part two with Sasha. And at the end, there will be the meditation on Hey Key Four, the Emperor, read by Angel Millar, and all music going with this by Chris Roberts. Enjoy. The Magician One and one only Am I in essence Changeless, indivisible Concealing within my being The ten lights of divine emanation In this mine inalterable unity I am supreme And there is none equal unto me Yet I myself remain unchanged throughout eternity. My power doth manifest itself in ceaseless change. They err who speak of my changelessness and essence as if it were fixity in operation. That which changeth not is mine own nature, but this includeth the possibility of an infinite diversity in ways and works the uninstructed this is a stumbling block confused by words of double meaning they perceive not this mine immutable nature is an essence of the first ground is life and not mere being thou knoweth me not O Israel if you regardeth me only as he who is they know me indeed who know that I am he who liveth I am life itself and without mind there is no life. I am the essence of mind, and the essence of mind is will. Of my will, all created wills are but reflections, and the essence of that will, what is it but desire? I am life eternal, and I am the eternal longing for manifestation, because of which I bring forth the shining worlds. For this I do divide myself, becoming two. Of these two, the first is the crown of my primal will. This, my superior nature, stands above the world which flows forth from mine act of knowing. Yet, even the superior nature is to mine inmost essence as something outside. Therefore, it is to me as Bet, my house, for I am within it, and it is an emanation from me. 
Nevertheless, I fill my dwelling place. Hence it is written that the supreme is distinguished from the crown by name only. In my supreme abode, I stand as the onlooker because mine unwavering contemplation, the stream of manifestation, continues on its course. Whatsoever existeth has its beginning in my will and continueth in my will, and it is my will cometh at last to its appointed end. Than this, indeed, there is no other will in all the universe, and yet all creatures have a part. From my substance all things derive their substance, but all that hath form is built from my fourfold elemental manifestation. Four other subtle principles, which the wise conceal from the uninitiated by the names fire, water, air, and earth. In my endless variety of mixture and proportion, directed by my will, these mingle together for the production of forms. They are the transmutation of a single essence, and from their mingling are brought forth all things. Watching thus the multiplicity of essences proceeding from my single essence, I understand them all in their relations. I perceive that their beginning, their middle and their end is in truth myself. Thus do I see that all things, whatsoever their appearance, because they spring from mine own nature, are grounded in goodness. My superior nature is reflected also in the mind of man, created in my image. Know me thus as the source of all true will. Know me also as the power to perceive objects, as having the appearance of standing outside and apart from him who regardeth them. That in thee, which so perceiveth objects, which giveth the power to distinguish them, which revealeth them unto thee, in their relations to each other and to thyself, and enable thee to search out the laws of their reciprocal action. Know this to be identical with my superior nature. Wherever this power acteth, whether in low forms or in high, I am its source, I am the knower. Not me, but mine is the power of attention of observation, of discovery, of discerning the sequence in the operation of nature. In all this, and in the power of discrimination, my superior nature worketh through thee. Happy art thou if you can grasp this truth, for then understanding is not thy weak self, but my all-knowing mind. Look out upon the world through thine eyes, thou shalt have faith to let me see. And then you shall overcome the evil of thy senses by devoting them wholly to my use. Not thou, but I shall then discern the weight and the shape and the texture of the things you touch. Not thine, but mine shall be the knowledge of the scent and the savour gained through the nose and the tongue. And when I use thine ears for hearing, you shall be attuned to the sweetest harmonies, whereas now you are assailed by strident discord. So shalt thou become a taker in the bliss of mine experience of the universe, 
a joy unknown to those of unperfected soul whose time of realization is not yet at hand. Another thing when you see him at first or from the outside also, maybe that has to do with the outfit and this very eccentric way of dressing up and his beard and, and, and so on. Is he an ascetic person or all to the contrary? What, how would you see him from your point of view? When, when did you say ascetic? No, ascetic, an ascete. An He is not only, well, I, it, it doesn't matter what I think, he tells us. This is the beauty of it. He, he tells us everything. Paladin tells us everything. Does he openly or does he pretend sometimes? Oh, well, so oh, he openly says asceticism is the new religion. And he talks about the religion of art. And this is all in La um, Idealis de Mystique, which, and as well as the third book in the amphitheater, the um, How to Become an Artist, which is spelt artiste, but that's because mm -hmm. he changed his mind halfway through writing it and um, wanted to direct it at anybody wishing to follow the lifestyle, or not the lifestyle actually, because it's an initiatory process for him, really becoming an aesthete in the way he means it. And listeners should not confuse that with aestheticism in the sort of more social dandyist sense. There's a, there's a big we get ourselves uh, right. I mean, and I said, as somebody who doesn't have sex, somebody who is lives, oh, uh, lives so a very, a very so reduced life. That's, that's I what see. I mean. Right. Okay. Because mm. that, that, that's what I thought you said initially. Exactly. I did. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Sorry. About I probably that. I didn't pronounce the English properly. No, yes. no it's okay. <laughs> um, well, it's a Greek word anyway. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. um, so, no. No, he most no, certainly yeah, was not. Yeah, What yeah. he was very, very clearly negative towards was sim what, what he called, and he explains this eloquently, and he explains it many, many times from as many angles as he can manage, is that he's against the idea of blind animalistic lust. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to just go because, you know, you've got an, pardon the expression, if you've got an itch, you've got to scratch it. If that's all you're doing, he said, then absolutely not. He certainly does advise his reader, and this is in the very first um, initiatory handbook, as I called them, uh, How to Become a Mage. Um, he says, you know, you've got to stop with the coffee houses, stop gambling, stop uh, blood sports, um, um, stop going to brothels, all of this. But then he does justify it, and he uh, and in the books that, uh, that come later, he, but even in the in the initial books. Um, to quite a great degree and he and he explains how can you possibly expect to keep your mind on you know to, to start discovering who you are with so much of that kind of energy about you um that there's you know that is actually polluting your, your, your you know the air you're breathing yeah um, that's, that's something that all magical schools would uh, underline right precisely yeah. precisely but um he is also a big big fan of sensuality But it's sensuality as long as it's beautiful. And he means beauty, not in the sense of pleasing to the eye alone, but beautiful in the sense that it actually has a spiritual dimension to it. 
Okay. So, um, and he's, uh, you know, he does at, at, at some point say to his uh, male readers, direct specifically at male readers, that, well, um, fair, you know, fair enough, it would be ideal if you could avoid marrying at all. But we have to remember, and one of the, the, the one of the mistakes that modern readers make a lot of the time is reading Paladin by today's standards. Oh, yeah. Well, that that's a problem that we have with all periods. With totally. From the old Greek and <laughs> Egyptian <laughs> writings. Let's not even mention that. But you until... Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sorry. Sorry, you but I had to say that. It no, it's me, true. Upsets me all the time. Yeah. Well, yeah. It, I, I, I'll add, and this would have to be a completely different conversation, that what upsets me as a Greek or as a half and half is the the, the error in the scholarship of Greek thought that are being made to this I'm day sure. yes. Um, yes. and language and language yeah. and, yeah. and yeah. <laughs> you know to, to, to us Greeks it's actually amusing um, yeah. but it's, yeah. it's also yeah. very very sad and likewise yeah. with so likewise with Paladin you see we've mm. got to remember he is moving within um, a bourgeois Parisian um, society that is incredibly, incredibly rigid. So when he's saying, well, it would be ideal not to marry if you can avoid it, we've got to remember when he's talking to those who have, you know, his readers who perhaps have um, the most intellectually developed and um, mm. whose intellectual pursuits um, may lead them to become um, sort of initiates in uh, the way he means it. Um, marriage in Paladin's day brought a whole host of responsibility, financial uh, uh, burdens. He talks a lot about that. If you're going to get married, make sure you can afford it. It. Remember, you're going to have to support your wife and family in all things. Your duty must only be must be to your children and what you know your wife and children yeah. first and foremost, yeah. and all of that. Yeah. So, but the practicalities he's talking about this isn't especially to um, uh, female listeners out there. Um, th this is this is not a patriarchal sort of you know oppressive whatever. It is the way of things in his day, and anybody who did not follow it could expect to find themselves in the gutter. He was um, more honest than others like Crowley, for example, at the time, right? right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He's, he yeah. warns, and, and when he writes for women, he says, you know, you cannot afford to um, do more than this, but let me show you how you can subvert things and live a much freer life. Um, well, that, that's something I uh, find you know. very interesting that he writes, for example, of that book you just mentioned, Comment de Vie Mage, How to oh. Become a Mage. Oh. He writes a female version of it, Comment de Vie Fée, Fée, which is also an interesting, he doesn't choose which mm. or whatever, but Fée. Um, and interesting that he would write two yes. manuals, so to speak, for... Mm -hmm. Uh, male and female participants, right? It, it is, it is. And he justifies it and he explains it. And, you know, Paladin has been accused. That's the other email I keep getting. So it's always, why do you keep saying he wasn't a, a traditional Catholic? And why do you keep saying he wasn't a misogynist? Folks, he wasn't a misogynist. Okay, um, it's, it's in the book, <laughs> I promise yeah. you. But the, mm -hmm. the, the, the people usually take a few lines from that book, Combien de Viennes um, out of context and mm. where he does in fact say that women's don't women don't have a brain yeah he says that mm. but he also explains that he is talking about 
uh, young French socialites, bourgeois socialites, who are essentially groomed to become nothing but trophy wives from the day they're born. Okay, and these poor, and this is who he's writing for. He expressly, um, who else was going to read this uh, kind of thing? Working class women? Perhaps a few aristocrats, yes, um, a few aristocratic women. But um, he is essentially writing for specifically that readership. And one of the reasons that he addresses things differently to men and to women is because of his whole metaphysical perception of sure. uh, the role of male and female in the grand um, cosmological scheme of things, uh, which again is monumentally complex. Complex, but um, also because he, these men and women already have very differentiated roles in the society he's writing for, and therefore he needs to address that completely differently. Um, and yeah, yeah. yeah. So, Do we know uh, much about his personal relationships in that sense? Yes, he was married twice. Um, mm -hmm. His first wife was a noblewoman. Um, th that ended in tears. Um, he liked ladies a lot. He liked mm -hmm. ladies a lot. But he was always, as de Gaetan wrote to him very frustratedly at one point, he was always trying to save their souls. And, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, there's a, uh, there's, a, there's a lovely little vignette that I have in the book um, talking about that. And he actually took those experiences of sort of um, visiting with ladies clubs and salons and that um, kind of thing. And Uh, he would then he would then turn that into a novel and try to use it as a kind of teaching tool as he went um his uh, so his first marriage did not go well um They, some, some say that it's because he, um, used up too much of his wife's fortune and she ended up, and she ended up selling his library to get her money back. Okay. Uh, yes, because Peladan had to actually publish in the press at one point a, a public apology, um, to any of his many friends who had gifted him books with dedications that if they were to suddenly see their gift to him on the second hand market, that it was why? not, <laughs> that, that's why, because his wife had gone and sold them while he was off traveling. <laughs> so, um, you know, which is, it's, it's amusing, but it's also, you know, quite it's sad. sad at the same time, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine uh, somebody would sell your books while you're away. Yeah. <laughs> all, all, all people listening here know what that means. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure. Indeed. Um, so that was his first marriage. And he went on a long journey to try and get over that. Um, and he eventually remarried um, uh, very, very happily, in fact, Christine. And she became his widow. I mean, she yeah. um, they absolutely doted on each other. Um, he wrote her poems that, again, followed his... Um, rather complex sort of um, esoteric uh, cosmological system with specific numbering, things like that, and uh, really saw her as um, the archetype of what he had been seeking. And she had that published a few years after he died. So, uh, th and they, she always um, professed to love him very, very much. Um, no children, for whatever reason. Um, reasons unknown, but um, very happy 
happily married second time right. round. Right. Yeah. I would like to come soon um, to the relationship between arts, be it um, on one hand, um, well, his art, his own art, but also the art he appreciated, like music, music like Wagner, Satie, Debussy, etc. But before that, you just mentioned somebody who was very important in his early life. And maybe as that name turns up a lot when we speak about Peladon, you could give us a little bit of a background to Degaita, how the splits between Degaita and Peladon happened and what mm -hmm. happened exactly there. So Degaita read Peladon's first book, first novel published 1884, Levis Suprême, um, in which, I mean, all of his novels drew on the sort of the, the archetypes that Peladon wanted to um, send messages about, for want of a better phrase there. Um, and he'd been, pla he'd planned them well in advance. And this was this one he'd been planning for a couple of years before it was published. De Gaeta reads it, gets in touch, writes to Paladin, telling him how, you know, a very, he, he's very young at the time, De Gaeta, mm -hmm. um, how much he admires, um, what he read and could they meet and they meet. And at the time, Paladin is moving in literary circles in Paris. Um, and he's writing for various um, newspapers and he's making himself a name as an art critic, but mm -hmm. he's not connected yet really to occult circles. And he and De Gaeta meet and he essentially guides, he mentors De Gaeta in his um, occult readings. Um, Peladan had been reading things like Agrippa and... Um, Fabre d'Olivier and so forth since his teens. Um, so by the time they met, um, he was well-placed, really, to guide the younger gentleman through all of that. Mm -hmm. And De Gaeta very quickly begins to find, a, he's, of, uh, um, he's, he's in Papus's circle, he's in Theosophical circles, he's everywhere. Yeah, he's ev everywhere, yeah. He's yeah, everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he, so he's the one who is, introduces Peladin to the rest of the occult milieu really. Um, and, wow. um, this is, uh, this is, so we're in the late 1880s really. And this is the time when, um, the vision of Papus and de Gaeta and a few others is to create a kind of, a, a kind of hermetic school, they called it, um, which would literally contain all the different um, esoteric traditions. It would, um, it, it would be kind of cornucopia, um, but it would also be a, a sort, a, a more or less closed school, a, a more or less closed order, um, with grades. Um, so what we call the quasi-Masonic style, uh, yeah. along the lines of a sort of, um, graded, uh, initiatory. Uh, was that, that the Kabbalistic order of Rosicrucians? Was that the one they created? So that's, um, yeah, that's the one that is eventually created with Peladan's input, mm -hmm. um, through Peladan's Rosicrucian um, connection as well. So Peladan was initiated by his brother. He initiates uh, yeah. De Gaeta. And that is how we then get that particular stream in Papus's Martinism as well. Yeah. So the um, Kabbalistic order of the Rose Croix is um, this 
uh, merging, this fusion, if you like, of several different streams, the one that Pella, the ones that Peladan is carrying, the ones that Papus is carrying or claims to be carrying. Um, but we also have Santiv Dalvedra, we also so we also have, and we also have uh, theosophical connections, Masonic connections. It's it's really a melting pot. And this um, is precisely what makes Peladan unhappy. Because okay. as is becomes abundantly clear in the last three books of Amphitheatre de Sciences More, as becomes abundantly clear in those three books, um, although he, write, he writes those much later, but it's where this, uh, much later than in the split, I mean. But mm-hmm. this is where he really unfolds where he was coming from in the first place. And it becomes so clear that it can never have worked because of the different um, weight that Peladan gave to things like religion and magic and um, ritual and so on and so on. Right. So so at the time, um, Peladan is getting increasingly unhappy and at some point he just stomps off and then writes um, a series of very, very kind of harsh announcements that uh, go public in the newspapers. Um, I mean, you know, they use the newspapers of the time like we use social media today. Uh, and it's it, it, to read, it, if, if you can imagine a big a sort of occult war as front page news in Paris newspapers. It's uh, it, it almost beggars belief, um, but he essentially says that uh, my uh, you know uh, it was fruitful. Our work together until now was fruitful, but I can no longer stand by and watch um, you know these things uh, being sort of merged together, um, and I will not rub shoulders with masonry, and I don't want to know about this, and I don't want to know about that. So mm-hmm. um, he is, is is essentially ideological, and to a, l- a large degree, it's theological as well, but that part's really complex <laughs> right right um, okay yeah yeah, yeah. so well, he breaks that's that's the break and thing. then they break and then he it's after that he creates the salon right the salon de la Rose. he he is pretty much in the same yeah pretty much in the in in the same couple of years so 1890 mm-hmm. he storms off and by 1891 he's already launching his idea 1892 yeah. we have the i think it's 1892 we have the first salon yeah, um, and uh, 1891, 1892. And um, this is the time when he really comes into his own to launch yeah. his, his grand yeah. vision. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. One person who, correct me if I am saying that wrongly, um, is, is not accompanying him maybe, but he was with him. I think he met him in the salon of the Gaita, together with the Gaita. But then he writes the music, the incidental music for this big play that um, that was then created by Peladon already for his salon, um, which is Le Fils des Etoiles. Um, and Satie wrote that incidental music for that. And um, uh, I would like to take him, Sati, as an example for the aesthetic, now the aesthetic this time, um, of uh, Peladon's art, both the visual art that he produces and likes. Um, mm, he doesn't he, produce visual but art. He doesn't produce, no, no, but he, 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 uh, he supports, let's put it that That's way. Right. Um, and um, the, but also the performing art, like here in that case, or the music that he that he he is inspired by. Can we can does this have a link between his occult um, research beliefs um, activities 
and the aesthetic of the work that he searches for in in visual and performing arts? Um, I'm not okay. I, I, I think I'm, I'm not sure I fully, fully grasped the, the question, but um, Paladin was okay. Paladin was intensely inspired by Wagner's Gesamtstück work. work. Absolutely. And when he saw, when he found found himself at Bayreuth for the first time, it was, it was an epiphany to him. Famous moment. Yes, Yes. indeed. I think it was Parsifal, right? It was Parsifal. I believe so, yes. And the idea of a combination of all the arts, which interestingly, it's worth noting, is something that Rosicrucians are charged with doing in the in the Pharma Fraternitatis. The Rosicru- what, what exactly do you mean? What are you um, with- uh, supporting the um, the flowering of all the arts? Okay. Emphasis mm-hmm. on all here. Mm-hmm. We could put mm-hmm. the emphasis elsewhere, but there's a particular snippet in there um, mm-hmm. about pursuing all the arts, and so right. Paladin sees this on stage at Bayreuth. And, and suddenly has this epiphany, this is what I'm meant to be doing. Yes. So, because it's, of course, it's this combination of performance and of in, what he perceives as initiatory um, theatre, um, the visuals and the music and um, all the rest of it. Now, um, Peladon was a novelist and a novelist only. He was not an artist. Um, yes. However, yes. he did feel that visual art was one he, he actually no he actually thought that the letters um were the supreme uh were one of the supreme arts but he's he also admits to being you know biased uh, when he claims that and um but he also thinks there's incredible power in the visual in visual arts as well and of course the power of the image this is something that uh, goes back yeah, a yeah, very long yeah, way yeah, yeah. um and as as for music, he actually thinks that the weaker of the arts because of its tendency to, um, you know, because it, it, it is lost in the moment. To go by, where you hear it, go, it yeah. it's gone, you mean, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the theatre, he sees the ritual potential and it's why he wrote theatre. Um, but of course, but as for music, um Peladon doesn't say an, a terrible, terrible amount about it, but he does—he most certainly does value it. Um, and so Satie is, and I, I will freely admit, I have not looked at the musical side of the salons very much at all. Mm-hmm. Um, one reason being it was simply out of the scope of what I was doing. A second reason being um, I have a very strong background in art history and literature and zero background in, mu- in music history. Mm-hmm. And therefore, it was kind of, I was, I, I, I... Just the opposite of me. Sorry, that's why I asked. <laughs> that, that's fine. That's fine. No, that, but that's brilliant, you see, because that means there's so much room there for other people to come in and do yeah. stuff. And that's, yeah. again, um, I'll say it again, what I'm hoping that um, this music and especially the later developments and Satie's influences and how that's uh, traveled, um, I quite frankly don't know. Um, and I'm glad that I don't know because that means so one day someone else is going to tell me. <laughs> exactly. And also Satie, I believe at some point he, he, 
in the noble way that, that he seems to have been, he also broke off from Peladon after the feast. He said, well, they, they separated again. They didn't very, carry on their relationship. Very right? graciously. But, but exactly. by that time, the Peladon was, um, you know, his, he was burning out at that point and mm. he was in danger of damaging others. And I think he knew that and other, and they knew that. Um, yeah. and there was this period, the first, the first few salons went absolutely brilliantly. Um, but then even though they were successful and they were popular, uh, Peladon's reputation was getting worse by the day mm -hmm. and the people mm -hmm. who were, who surrounded him, you know, didn't really want yeah, to get tired of yeah, that rush. Yeah, sure, sure. So. In, in that play, though, and that has nothing to do with music, but with mm. text only, I can only cite that I uh, from, from Wikipedia, to be honest, but it struck me um, because uh, you mentioned Crowley earlier and that at some point he admired him and took, took ideas from Peladon and then he dropped him. And there is that phrase, which is, was written by Peladon in the play, Lefice said, well, I have to read that. That which is above is like that which is below, and that which is below is like that which is above. So far, mm -hmm. so good. Mm -hmm. To accomplish the miracles of will. Will rises from the earth to the sky and then descends once more onto the earth, receiving the strength of superior and inferior things. Well, that's very Salemic in the end, isn't it? Oh, Oh, <laughs> no, it's not. It's Fabri d'Olivet. That's what it is. It is. But I mean, the question <laughs> of the will coming from up and beyond that, that's something that is, uh, it's, come, I, I know what you're saying. I'm not a celibate myself at all. Um, but um, the question of the will and the true will is something that uh, Salima has taken from others. They didn't invent it, of course, mm -hmm. but it's very, it's a way it's, put that I could see Crowley inspired by that phrasing. Certainly, certainly, certainly that's who he was inspired by. And I, I, I you see, when I realized and I actually was able to document that um, Crowley was certainly very familiar with Peladon's work. And um, this is before he's actually uh, really uh, got yes, yeah, yeah, his sure, own. Sure. And then he makes every effort to sling mud all over Peladin's name. Exactly. Um, however, um, the interesting part is we know exactly where that come that idea, um, where how Peladin puts that idea together, because the idea of drawing on inferior things he gets from Darwinism. Because Peladan yeah. is a very, very strong believer in science. And this is going to come as a curveball to uh, some, perhaps. Um, but Peladan absolutely accepts the findings of um, many scientists of his day. He also argues with some of them. So, for example, he very much um, accepts the theory of evolution and uses it, in fact, to underpin his own metaphysical theory of evolution with regard to the invisible world, but at the same time absolutely refuses to believe that humans are descended from monkeys. He thinks that we are a separate um, entity um, above the animal kingdom, below the spirit, the kingdom of yeah. spirits. Um, but then, you know, Peladam will talk molecules, Peladon will talk amoebas, he will talk about how the um, the uh, the vibrations and the energies of lower um, entities uh, perfectly mirror 
the world of higher entities. And he mm-hmm. believes that Darwinism is the proof of this. And therefore, right. when he's talking about drawing on both, and he has this very com- very neat, actually, trip- tripartite system talking about will, providence and destiny, which is all based on Fabre d'Olivet, but Pelletan's actually cleaned it up a bit. And Theosophy, right, as well? I mean, Fabre d'Olivet, no? um, If you mean Burma's Theosophy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Sorry. Not not yeah. not uh, Blavatsky. Not, not Blavatsky. No. no <laughs> yeah. No, okay. No, no, no. Um, there, there are certainly yeah. There, there is certainly influences uh, flowing mm. from there as well. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, yeah. And so that's how Paladin has put this together, um, and he unfolds all of this in again in uh, Amphitheatre, and I believe again we found where do we where's where's this one? This I think is partly in. A, Partly in the last one, Traité des Antinomies. I, I can't remember precisely off mm-hmm. the top of my head, um, but I can certainly find it. Um, it's, it's in, again, the last three books mostly. And um, he very clearly outlines, you see, this idea of um, will, destiny, providence, and how those are reflected in every aspect of being, and then how that is reflected in the above and below. And so, and will being the element that we are called upon to cultivate while acknowledging the force of destiny and while accepting uh, or, um, or, or uh, accepting understanding the role of providence you see mm-hmm. and but it's mm-hmm. all three so whether right. I, I i have not really i haven't i haven't tried hard enough really and i'm not i i probably won't try to i hope somebody does um definitively prove how and when and, and in what way precisely crowley may have drawn from this but if uh, someone were to do a comparative study or perhaps even attempt to document this and i'm sure there's enough material but you'd have to know the crowley's um, work inside out and i don't of course um that is and especially the history um Mm. of its production that is where those connections which is certainly a complex history as well yes exactly exactly Um, and that's a project, I hope somebody's listening, that's a project yeah. waiting to be taken up. Well, there's only, I think the third project that you launched here that people should grasp on, that's great. It's, it's, it's going to open the, the, the studies so far. You, you have done something though, and I have to ask you that now. Um, the, uh, recently, I think it was in February, you gave a course, uh, online I course did. on uh, Peladon's self-initiation system, I think mm-hmm. you call it. Mm-hmm. Um, so... If someone is fascinated by Peladon, by what you write, by what he hears here or has read before, etc., and would like to go that, along that path, you know, it's um, how should he or she do that? What a for who do you think is it? Who who do you think would be attracted by that kind of system? Uh, is it a system? That's first question. And if so, what path to take? Where where to start? How to get into it? So the reason I um, offered, well, I offered it as a course because I kept getting people um, telling me I should. Um, and with the books essentially under uh, in production, it seemed as, as good a time as any. Um, and it went extremely well, very well attended, um, fantastic feedback, which has helped me um, 
improve in fact on um what i'll do now what i'll do with it next um and as 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 i as i as i have explained to everybody who who took it and uh, who asked um this was not um an initiatory um, process in itself. I can't initiate anyone into anything. I'm a mm. scholar. Um, all I did was a curate because it's massive. Peladan's work is just too massive. Um, so I curated it to a degree that would not lose the essence, but that made it slightly easier to digest in a very short compact mm-hmm. format. Um, B, I translated masses of it <laughs> because it's not available in English, uh, apart from the one book, but there's not enough context there. So people, you know, mm-hmm. taking out of context, people don't really have a clue what they're looking at. Um, dangerous anyway. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, no, it, well, all it's led to is people getting the same impression of Peladan that everybody's already has, which yeah, is Yeah, well, exactly. That's <laughs> yeah. the danger I mean. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and secondly, what I did was I framed it with the context text and the I, I explained the ideas that were feeding in and where necessary as we've done in this conversation unpicked some of the common misconceptions um, about what was being said so whether it's the idea of will or above below and so forth yes. um, and from there we had an, um, um, a very sort of um, very cool interactive session that we I, I, everyone really enjoyed those where um I'd give guided activities to work on pieces of sort of the material. And then we discuss what um, Peladan was actually getting at. Now, um, who's it for? Who's it for? It's for people who really are looking for the, they're looking for meaning. They're looking, they, they have the sense that there is something more to life. Um, they have an affinity perhaps for the arts but they don't really know how to put all that together. And they're also kind of drowning in modern life, which I think goes mm-hmm. for most of us. And I think it even goes for most of us who are, who have found some form of stability in yes. whatever sense. Yes. Uh, and that's simply the sort of, you know, the, <laughs> the way of things at the moment. Um, it is a system, but it's a very much self-directed system. It's, it is self-guided. It is self-directed. It is self-initiated. And that makes it extremely tough in with regard to the self-discipline needed. It can be you and a book. But what Peladan does is in the first two books, and this is what really alienates modern readers, is he uses shock tactics for both Comment devient mage, Comment devient fait. It's shock tactics. He's really rude to his reader for the first couple of chapters. And if that doesn't put you off and you're still reading by, you know, a little bit further on, then he changes tone, changes tack, and you start to realize this guy's the real deal. And what he's telling you to do, essentially, and it it very much is a system, it's how to use your whole day, how to build this idea of becoming self-aware, discovering what and who on earth you are as a person, first of all. Um, It's a process of individuation before Jung invented the idea. And Mm -hmm. again, that's another project, if anyone's listening and interested in that. Um, Again, I I was not able to chase up or prove definitively any influence of Peladan on Jung. 
um, my goodness, there must be something. I mean, Peladon did know Bergson. That's that's all I can say. So, um, and that could be a potential connection. But it mm-hmm. is uh, it is a process of self determination with a very strong spiritual dimension. But if you're not the spiritual type, that it's there's enough of an intellectual dimension there for you to focus on instead. And Peladon provides for each sort of eventuality. So he knows not everybody's going to do the religious thing. He knows not everybody's going to be the consummate intellectual. And that's hence why there's so many books. He's trying to provide for different types of character. Mm -hmm. And and he Mm -hmm. says there is no wrong way to do this unless you're trying to do things by half measures or you're trying to keep one foot in the world of gambling and, uh, you know, um, ladies and what have you. And take the half blue pill and the half yeah, yeah 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 there's, there's, <laughs> exactly. there's no there's no doing that um and it's also for artists in the sense that and i can say this from personal experience the 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 potential and the um sheer material for um inspiration is absolutely infinite you can go crazy with it even you know you can go abstract with it you can go figurative with it you can go okay i'm a visual artist i can't talk in um, musical terms, I wish I could, but um, there there is infinite scope for uh, inspiration. Um, and so it really is a system to, it's not for people who like ritual and who like group work. This isn't, and it's not for people who, for whom the social dimension, the um, performative dimension matters as much. There is a performative dimension to it, but it hurts. And it hurts because you don't get to feel a sense of belonging. You're always going to stand out in a crowd and not always in a good way. And it's not Pelag- the egregore, it's, it's something else, right? It, it's, a, it, it, it's a different egregore. It's a different egregore. And it's one that once taps into, you'll know the difference, so to speak. And Paladin yeah. does explain this because he does emphasize the performative part, but it's not, uh, but it's one which will, you know, it will, you will have to step out of society or you will have to try to blend in while knowing that you don't fully belong. And it's not like we find in some um, esoteric orders where there's a kind of collegiality. None of that's there. But if we go back to, we need to remember all of this rests, Paladin and the Rosicrucian order he was initiated into initially takes the farmer literally. And by taking the Mm. farmer literally, it's, you know, it's about doing good and healing in the quietest possible way and not standing out for being special. You're going to stand out because you can't help it um, in a sense. So those are some dimensions, but it re- it is the real deal. It's just not easy. There's a lot of inner work required. There's a lot of study required. Peladan throws references to reading material thick and fast and the reading material he expects you to actually read. Um, right. And so you, whether it's Plato or the Neoplatonists or more recent uh, writers, Fabri d'Olivet, um, many others whom he's, he admires. Um, and he says, you know, I, you want to say that you're an initiate, you want to know what magic is. Um, magic is the art of sublimation of self. What does it mean mm-hmm. to sublimate yourself? Let's start right there. And yeah. uh, it, it, But he needs to be taken literally. 
um, right. quite frankly. Right. <laughs> so. right, right. Well, thank you, um, Sasha. You gave us an enormous amount of inspiration and knowledge here today. So. Thank you so much. And well, um, we are all looking forward to that book finally to appear i think you yourself too must Very be so. uh, happy that it comes out i think late june early july 22 uh, it is due so we'll keep an eye on that i'll let people Indeed. know um but it was really nice that you you responded to that uh, moment where it was announced and uh, was uh, we're here with us here today thank you so much well thank you very much Have a good remainder of, of the Easter holiday, I hope. And I um, uh, hope to speak again in some other moment. Uh, and uh, thank you for that. Good evening. Back to you in Greece. And goodbye for now. Bye. Bye-bye. And thank you. The Emperor. The Emperor. In whatsoever objects thou perceivest, know me as the essence, as the idea, and as the interior nature. Because of this the wise come easily to me, by many paths, yet in truth these different roads are but a single way. If thou canst penetrate into the nature of the simplest thing, there thou shalt find me. This is the key to the mystery of the sacred letters. Fix thy mind on the object set before thee by any letter and hold thy thoughts to the meditate thereon. Then shall the inner nature of that object be made known to thee, and by this means shall thou draw nigh to some aspect of my being. Consider then the secret meaning of the letter Hey, for even as I am the essence and idea and interior nature of every ox, of every house, of every camel, and of every door, so I am also the essence and idea and interior nature of every window. If thou set thy mind to meditate upon the interior nature of a window, thou shalt readily perceive that every window hath somewhat the nature of a door, inasmuch as it is an opening in the wall of a house. The house is Keta, the crown of primal will, and the door is Bina, the gate of understanding. And as the thought of the door is from the building of the house, so is the thought of the window from the fashioning of the door. Hence those instructed in the secret wisdom declare that Hesed, the path of beneficence, proceedeth from Binah, the gate of understanding, even as the idea of the window proceedeth from the idea of the door. For I am merciful, because mine understanding compasseth the secret nature of all things, and my loving-kindness is the fruit of my discrimination. Again, a window is set in the wall of a house, even as the eye is set in the head, that they who dwell within may look abroad to see what passeth without. Hence it is written in the Book of Formation that the letter He correspondeth unto the faculty of sight. This referreth to my power of vision, which is not as thine, since nothing escapeth it, and all things appear unto it in their true aspect. It is written, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. And because I, the dweller in the house of the supernal will, see all things as they really are, my vision have no taint of false judgment. Seeing I understand, and because nothing is hid from me, therefore I am merciful. 
But the path of my mercy is away concealed from the profane, because they have not attained unto my perfect vision. Easier to follow is the flight of an eagle, for my way soareth high above the comprehension of the mind of man. As it is written, Lo, he goeth by me, and I see him not. He passeth on also, and I perceive him not. Yet is the secret of that way hidden in thy bosom, O Israel. For my way is the way of the word, and the word is hidden in thy heart. For this is the word creative, which calleth all things into being. Here is a mystery, for the letter He concealeth the word, and the word is as truly a vision as it is a voice. With me there is no difference between speech and sight. In very truth I utter myself by seeing unto the uninstructed. The coming forth of the creative word is as a mist and a vapor, for existence is as a veil of concealment, which hideth my true nature from their eyes. Hidden and imperceptible is the essence of my being, which sages call concealed with all concealments. By day, when thy senses busy themselves with their appropriate objects, if thou seest me at all, shall I be unto thee even as to thy forefathers, naught but a pillar of cloud, vague and uncertain, going before thee. But at night, when thou hast withdrawn thy senses into themselves, and thy mind is no longer swept away by the multiplicity of objects, thou shalt perceive me more clearly as a pillar of living fire. Behold, it shall be well with thee, if thou canst understand this saying, and if thou knowest what is day and what is night. None have seen me face to face, for I am the forerunner of all. Thus, O Israel, am I ever before thee on the way of life, and to all mankind it is said, even as to Moses. Thou shalt see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen, no matter how far thou goest. I have already passed that way. Thou shalt never see me as I am, but thou mayest know me in what I have done. The wise discover me in my works. No man perceiveth me as father, until as mother I have brought forth creatures. The following of Hay after Dalet in the alphabet is a sign and symbol of this truth. Even as Ima, the mother, concealeth the Yod of Ab, the father, so doth Hay, though the wise call it the mother wherewith creation took place, concealeth that same paternal Yod, since Hay in its plenitude is the number ten. Therefore the letter He belongeth to my paternal mercy, since in the number four, which appertaineth to Hesed, mercy is the number ten concealed, even as it is hidden in the word window. And in that exhaustless mercy lie hid the riches of the kingdom, for the Decad is the kingdom, and the Decad is hidden in Hesed. You regard me, therefore, as the paternal yod, which is part of life to the whole creation. Not made with hands, but begotten, is this universe, of which thou art at once a part and the whole. Of mine own substance are all things made, and I give myself freely to every one. They know me truly who see that it is my nature to bring forth and to originate. This whole universe is an expression of my primal will to yield fruit. 
Even as in Genesis thou mayest read that light was the first creation, so have it been known since the beginning by the wise. They worship me with wisdom, who turn their faces toward the east, for the shining of the dawn is a type of all my works. This whole creation is the irradiation of that limitless light, which I am, but never shall mere man attain to the source of that divine illumination. None may grasp me, and to those who seek to capture me in the net of thought, I am eternal fugitive. Yet though I elude pursuit, I am the source and support even of the pursuers. I am, in truth, the food of all beings, the bread thou hast eat is my body, the wine thou hast drink is my blood. For because creation took place with the letter hay, that letter is the ground of all created existence, the stuff from which every form is built, the supply for every need. All this am I, therefore though none may capture me in the net of thought, he shall speak truly who shall say, laying his hand on anything soever, whether men prize it or scorn it as of no worth. Dost ask me to show thee the Lord? Verily in this shalt thou find him, if thou hast eyes to see. Key for meditation on hay from the Book of Tokens. It is uh, written by Chris Roberts, well, set into music by Chris Roberts and uh, read in this case by Angel Millar. And we have listened to two more of those Book of Tokens meditations, readings set into music by Chris previously. And once again, well, great stuff, great stuff. Thanks, Chris. And thanks, Chris, for the jingles for Kaikobad Radio. Thank you for the intro and outro for this show. And um, once again, everyone, if you need any music for your projects, um, if you need practical help with that, making on mixing and mastering music, vocals, podcasts, jingles, let me know. I'll point you forward to Chris or contact him directly via Facebook if you wish. And um, that'll be great. Perfect. So, and now a big thanks to Sasha Chaito for a great talk that we had. And we are really all very much looking forward to having that book that is announced by Theon Publishing in hands. That will be great stuff, I am sure. We are going to enjoy greatly. And, um, well... Thank you all for listening, because now this is the end of this week's episode. And it was great to have you here and great to have you with me here. Um, thank you for being so, so regular. And, and, and uh, yeah, it was great to have you. Now, um, the only thing that we still have to do is to let you know who will be with us here today, next week. And... Well, I must say I'm very, very pleased uh, because I have uh, uh, 
I have uh, really, I'm very happy to have next week Ron Clark as my guest here. Ron, who has been essential, I would say, in making Franz Barden better known to the English-speaking world. You remember that uh, great website uh, that he had with all the Barden text explanations, etc. You certainly know the practical companion for the students uh, of Franz Barden's system of hermetic initiation by him. That was published about 10 years ago, I believe it was. And um, well, I'm already by that. I am already very happy to have him, but especially because he is known to be rather shy with interviews or as he puts it, difficult. Uh, well, I don't think he's difficult. He is just um, not the guy who gives interviews all the time. And But he has agreed to come on this show and that makes me very happy and very proud and I'm highly looking forward to that. Next week, next Sunday, May the 8th, Ron Clark will be show guest here on the Thoughts Hermes podcast. And until then, I hope you will have a good week. I hope that uh, you will have a safe week and I'm looking forward to have you back on the show. Until then, I tell you, take care, stay tuned, hear you soon.